Well, good evening, everyone. Christ is risen. Amen. It is uh, good to see all of y'all tonight. Of course, I bring regrets from uh, Pastor Kurt. Uh, Pastor Kurt had uh, surgery on his neck uh, yesterday in Houston. And the last I heard is they were getting on the airplane to come home. And so that's got to be great news. And so they are either home or almost home uh, as we speak. And so we're very, very grateful for the great news uh, there. So I thought before we prayed, I'd put you all to the test. It all just kind of is a perfect storm to put you to the test today. And um, you're going to get a prize if you get this right. And um, so remind everybody what the most often repeated passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament is. Go. What's that? No, 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 no. What, what passage of scripture, like chapter and verse? Y'all don't know this? Come on. I actually wrote it in Tower Times, in my article in Tower Times about a month ago. So y'all forgot it? I think, I think Daniel probably on the back row knows, right? Yeah, Daniel knows. Anybody else? All right. So you should know this. Today is the 110th day of the year today. It is Psalm 110. The beginning of Psalm 110 is the most often repeated verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So does anybody know Nancy Dakel and know where Nancy Dakel lives? Would y'all mind running these? Since nobody got, I was going to give you these flowers if uh, nobody got it right tonight. But Nancy Dakel needs some love. She got a pacemaker put in uh, yesterday, and now she's home. But anybody mind running these flowers to her? Very good. And tell them that they are from the whole Wednesday night Bible study, Kara. All right. There you go. Thank you very much. Well, very good. Well. We're going to pray Psalm 110, and I want to challenge you to ponder why in the world that the New Testament authors were so enamored with this passage, that they would repeat it time after time. Psalm 110, let us pray together. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath, and he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen indeed. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Colossians. We are making our way through, and as uh, we've been kind of emphasizing, one of Paul's major concerns for this upstart church in Colossae 
Um, and then, you know, there's probably also a church in Heriopolis, which is uh, north of them, and then another church uh, to the uh, west of them slightly is Laodicea. And he's kind of speaking to all of these churches, and we'll see some of that come into clarity towards the end of the book. These upstart churches that have been, been planted um, from uh, missionaries, well, they weren't really missionaries because uh, Epaphras, uh, who comes and shares the gospel uh, with the uh, folks in Colossae, is actually from Colossae. But he had made his way to Ephesus where Paul was and became a follower of Jesus there under Paul's ministry and then took the gospel back. And so it's a very small church, uh, very new, and Paul has these concerns. And it's, it's so interesting that that these concerns, while different than maybe ours today would be, we always have this tendency to be distracted, right? Distracted by lots of different things. We don't necessarily have the same temptations to distraction that they do. And we'll get into some of that here, here in a little bit. But nonetheless, we have the tendency to be carried away by distractions that can weigh us down and to keep us focused off of the risen, to keep our focus off of our king, off of the risen Lord. And so that is what Paul is really focusing in on. And one of the things that he's been kind of hammering on, and Pastor Kurtzman done such a great job kind of taking us into the Gnostic world, right? And this Gnostic, these, these Gnostics, they, they really downplayed the importance of the body, that the body was something that was, was evil and sinful and something to be liberated from. So, in essence, you could do whatever you wanted to do with your body. It didn't matter. What mattered was what was inside and the special knowledge uh, that you can gain. And so that's kind of the, uh, the pe- people in the Gentile world would be kind of possibly distracted by that because their gods, like Zeus and um, Jupiter and all of those gods, they were starting to lose their place in uh, first century Roman culture. So something had to take its place. And this Gnostic way of being in the world was kind of coming into forefront. What can be trusted? Let me ask you this. What can be trusted more, your heart or your body? Oh, but the scripture actually says that the heart is deceitful above all things. I'm not making that up, am I? Right? So what does that say about our heart in relation to our bodies? That our bodies can be trusted, right? We, one of the things that we have done um, is that we have, you know, we've kind of split off our lives. We talk about our physical life and we talk about our um, spiritual or inward life. For Jesus, that made no sense. For Jews, that made no sense whatsoever that we are people, both body and spirit. Everything is spiritual, right? And so what's curious is that actually our bodies can be trusted more than our brains and our hearts. And there is this, this new neo, we, we just call it a neo-Gnostic movement 
that is very prevalent in our culture that says, whatever I feel in here, that's gospel. Body be damned, right? Do with my body whatever I want, right? And so we got to kind of refocus our attention here and notice even today, even though we're going to make this switch, I think, from kind of dealing with primary Gnostic distractions to primarily Jewish distractions. But just notice how these things happen to people in their life with God, in their body. When you're baptized, what gets baptized? Your body. When you take communion, these two things that Jesus says that we should do, how do we take them? In our bodies, right? And we'll see the implications of that as we continue uh, through here. Any questions or thoughts on that? I see some quizzical looks on your faces. And I think the reason it's kind of quizzical is because we are often subject to the cultural, uh, cultural chirpings of the day. And we end up getting trapped or drawn in to their arguments. Um, and so we've got to be careful about that. All right. Are we ready to move? Rayford, are we ready? All right. Let's do it. We are in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And again, this is something that happens in our bodies. The Gnostics would say, no way, it can't happen in your body. Your body is evil. But no, this is this, this resurrection we, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? And, and so that is what he is uh, working through here uh, relative to the symbol of baptism. And he's going to explain more of what he means as he goes on uh, here. Verse 13, when you were dead. One of the things I want you to ponder in this section of Colossians is... And Pastor Kurt and I try really hard to keep all of, the, all of our study rooted in particular, if not the whole Old Testament, but certainly in particular the first three chapters of the Bible. If you don't have a solid grasp about what went on in those first three chapters, you do not have a grasp on what God is trying to redeem and undo and make new again. Right? So Adam was told by God that all of this, it's yours. Eat it, enjoy it, uh, except for this one tree. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so there is this, there is this sense that what happens in Genesis is that uh, Adam and Eve made this choice that what God was inviting them to was not good. And even though God said it would lead to death, I mean, that's anytime we sin against God, anytime we sin, period, that's internally what is going on with us is that we have 
We, we, we make this choice, maybe it's in desperation, maybe it's just the, a sense of that's the only way we're going to be able to get ahead. But when we sin, it's this, this act on our part that says, God is not for me. God is against me. I've got to take matters into my own hands so that I can live a full life. Now, it may not all go in our head that fat, like that every time, but when you work, after you've committed a sin, you start asking the question, well, good grief, God, why did I do that? That is the place that you'll be led. All of our sin is rooted in the assumption that God is not who God says he is and God cannot be trusted. Because if you did believe those things, we wouldn't sin. And so there is this, there is this um, declaration on Paul's part that that is the path that we have all taken. We have taken the path of death. Now, did Adam and Eve die when they ate? They didn't die in the sense of the term that we think about death, the type of death that leads us to go attend a funeral. They did not die like that. But did they die? Certainly they died. And was there implications for their bodies when they died? Absolutely. What did they do? They started covering things up. They started hiding. They started feeling fear and shame and guilt. I want you to write those three words down somewhere. That when you kind of dig into Genesis chapter 3, that those become the leading implications of our choice to, to not trust the goodness of God. That we feel guilty. So Adam was like, dang, I'm going to die. So he goes and hides. Right? That's guilt. There is shame. All right? This sense that I belong, that I have a place, that I am welcome. It all gets covered up. And now they feel shame. And then there is certainly fear that is present. Uh, that's what Adam responds. I hid because I was afraid. Now, we Protestants are, are really, really good about seeing what happened on the cross as a way of, uh, of, of Jesus absorbing our guilt. We are guilty of sin, worthy of death. Jesus dies on the cross to absorb our sin and absorb our guilt. And now the guilt is gone. So the, so the rationale works. What's the purpose of the guilt being gone? Any thoughts? So that we can be in God's presence again. And we can experience relationship with God again so that we can believe and trust that we have a place, we have a purpose, and that we no longer have to feel afraid. Right? It's all, it it's all comes, comes together. I heard this this past week. I think it's interesting. 
in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how much space is, is, uh, is, do the gospel writers contribute to Jesus dying? It's one verse in every gospel. How many verses are, are um, given over to Jesus taking on our shame? The floggings. The crucifixion. That's, that was an act of shame. That what you have done means you don't belong here. And since you don't belong here, we're going to use you as a public spectacle to keep people from doing the things that you've done. That is shame. Right? And so all, all of that is like, it gets caught up in the event of Christ dying. So when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Christ died our death for us, and we then, as, as we trust in Christ, we are made alive. We are made alive in our bodies now. This is not a, this here is not a statement about what happens when we experience life in heaven, but it is a statement about our life right now. Who is our king? Jesus is our king, right? And this is our life this alive life now in the kingdom of God. He forgave us our sins. That's the guilt part. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We don't have to feel guilty anymore that we can is the writer of the book of Hebrews says, we can boldly approach the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need, right? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, the powers that were at work that crucified Jesus, they believed that they were winning. Right? They believed that this troublemaker, uh, this person that was blaspheming God on the Jewish side, on the Roman side, the person that was stirring up all of this insurrection in the city, um, that they had won. And there are these powers that were behind them that were celebrating uh, this great victory over the Messiah. And actually, the exact opposite happened. Like the resurrection of Jesus vindicates Jesus' life. It vindicates the truth about who Jesus was because he rose from the dead. And that is like, you thought you were shaming Jesus? You thought you were doing that? You thought you were taking his life? It's actually the opposite. You, You gave him space to defeat all of the powers and the principalities. 
Questions, thoughts. What difference does this make? Any thoughts? So this is our reality. As we look at Jesus, as we put our faith in him as both our Savior and Lord, that's what we say. uh, Those are the questions that Pastor Kurt, Pastor Melissa, and myself ask when someone is being baptized. Do you profess Jesus Christ as Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as Lord? That when you look at Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are alive. That we don't have to go looking for life in other places. We don't have to go looking for direction in other places. For Colossae, we don't have to go looking for uh, life with the Gnostics. We don't have to go looking for life in committing ourselves to this rigorous uh, keeping of the Torah, which we're going to get in today, get into later today. But our focus is to always be on the risen Christ. He's alive. He has defeated death, and we experience new life and resurrection with him. Always keep this in the back of your mind. Without, there can never be a resurrection without there first being a death. Something has to die in order for it to be raised, right? And there in us, when we look into the eyes of Jesus and we commit to following him as Savior and Lord, there will be this regular invitation from Jesus. Hey, are you going to let me touch that? Are you going to let that die so it can be raised to new life and new purpose? And there's a lot of ways in which our world will try to distract us. No, 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 no. You need to hold on to that. If you let that go, if you let Jesus heal and restore and raise that to life, you're actually going to be robbed of life. And we'll get into more of the the nitty-gritty of those types of things in chapter 3. Questions, thoughts, feelings, emotions. Okay. So if this is true about Christ, if this is true about us, verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone, mine says, judge you. Anybody have anything else there? I'm sorry. Condemn. All right. What are some other ways, other West Texas words that we might could fill in there? Pressure you? Good. I think another way to say the same thing is do not let anyone look down on you. Right? Like, peer pressure is real. Cultural pressure is real. Right? And what's that? 
force you? Yeah, it's, it, it is real, Sam, for sure. And so there is this, you know, Jesus was Jewish, right? We firmly believe that what God was doing in the Old Testament through the Jewish, through the Jewish people came to fruition and fulfillment in the person of Jesus, right? But there is always going to be this contingency, especially in the ancient world, um, when you get around Jewish people that have lived their life in a certain way all their whole life as, a, as an expression of their devotion to God. They're going to be skeptical of you. Because Jesus is the one that made the way for us Gentiles to be brought into the family, right? And now we're trying to do this with our Jewish brothers and sisters. How does that work? So many of Paul's writings deal with this. I mean, just go read the book of Galatians. I mean, the circumcision thing was a big deal. Like, these Christians were being, these, these Gentile Christians were being told by the Jewish Christians in Galatia, unless you are circumcised, you are not in the family. Now, funny, this could be played out here in Midland too. And I always talk, like, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago in the, uh, in our Palm Sunday service, the late service, we were all, we were combined that day, and we baptized a uh, young man, his name is Jackson. He's eight years old. And I was having a conversation with Jackson, and uh, he, I said, you know, here in the Methodist Church, we uh, baptize in three different ways. Uh, we sprinkle, we pour, or we immerse. And normally, kids that age that are making this decision on their own, what are they ready to do? Go all in, right? But he wanted to be sprinkled. So pastorally, what do you think I needed to tell him? Well, you may have all experienced it if you grew up in the Methodist church and then you started hanging around your Church of Christ or your Baptist friends, right? What do you mean you got sprinkled? You weren't really baptized. <laughs> no, hold on a second. Uh, the amount of water, biblically speaking, does not matter. It's what's here, right? And that you're walking in obedience to Jesus to get baptized. Those are the things that are important. It is the faith you're professing. Uh, but that's the same sort of thing. I, in my life, have felt looked down upon for me being sprinkled. Now, I have a choice to make. Do I allow that, that to affect my life with God? Do I say, no, evidently that wasn't good enough, and then do I go get baptized all the way under? Or do I, do I stand in confidence with who I am? So the same sorts of things happening here. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you, look down on you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a, sha- or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. One would assume that people like Peter and Paul continued to 
honor these things. That they continued to observe Sabbath. That they continued to uh, celebrate at the special festivals uh, and the like. But for Gentile followers of Jesus, those things were not completely necessary. Or necessary at all. Is what, what he is saying. Now, Pastor Kurt's always done a good job to teach us about the festivals, right? And how these festivals, just like Paul is saying here, they point to greater things. Just like our conversations about the Passover uh, leading up to Easter. That, that Jesus himself co-ops the Passover and says, the Passover, it's me. I am the lamb. And then the New Testament writers, they're like, they seize it. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But to require Gentile followers of Jesus to honor these festivals in a way that they have grown up. Paul is saying, who was being somebody else that would have honored these festivals, right? His whole life he would have. This is not necessary. Don't let them look down on you when they insist that you become just like me. In order to follow Jesus. It's what he's saying here. Do the, one of the things I do, I do want to, to uh, remind us of is that all of these festivals. And even the reality of the Sabbath. Which uh, Sabbath keeping is like for Protestants especially in North America. I grew up when the blue laws were just going away. I mean Allie do you even remember blue laws at all? No. It's like. Yeah, like things were not, oh, it's, it's all gone. So there's this no honoring of a day of rest or Sabbath anymore. Well, what we need to be remember, remember not to just to, to hear what P- Paul is saying. Don't let people look down on you. You don't have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. Don't let them look down on you. But there is still wisdom in the Sabbath laws. You think we're, we're taught, take it to the limit, baby. Wasn't there an eagle song along those lines? Take it to the limit. Well, we have limits. Is that taught? No. In our culture? No. We have limits. Sabbath keeping in Scripture teaches us we have limits. And so we should figure out ways to honor that and to recognize we have limits uh, for sure. So there is wisdom to be learned from all of this, but it is not commands to be taken strictly, I think is what Paul is saying. Because obviously there are some Christians, Jewish Christians in Colossae that are beating the Gentile Christians over the head or could beat the Gentile Christians over the head say, you got to do this. You got to do this to be a follower of Jesus. And he's saying, no. What's the reality? The reality is found in Christ. Verse 18. Do not let anyone look down on you Do not let anyone who, excuse me, verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels uh, disqualify you. 
Let me go on and, and read just a little bit more, and then we'll come back and pull this all together. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows and sinews grows as God causes it uh, to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of, this, of the world, why, as though, do you still belong to the world? You, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with the use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, this is the key, have an, ha, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So I wanted to read it down through that and at the end of verse 23 to get both of those uh, instances of false humility in there. That I think what Paul is meaning by false humility is that there were people uh, then and even now and all through, through the age, through Christian history, that have done terrible things to their bodies in order to show God and to show others how spiritual they were. Martin Luther, uh, before, before nailing the 95 Theses up on the, up on the door in, in uh, Wittenberg, uh, Germany, um, he would beat his body severely in order to try to keep himself from sinning. Mutil- literally mutilating his body, a gift that God had given him to keep him from sinning. And do you wonder how other people thought about that? Like his fellow monks, he was a monk at the time. Whoa, wow, it's amazing what links he would go to to try to keep from sinning. Or the general public. I mean, and so that. That's false. That's what false humility is. It is doing things that you normally would not do to try to earn favor from God and from others. False humility. So then let's ask the question what is true humility? True humility is getting into this place in your life where you're oriented to Jesus you're oriented to God you trust his character and you allow him to lead you and when I say trust his character and I hold up my hand like this do y'all remember what I'm intending y'all to remember there's five things that God says to be true about himself. And if we 
truly believe and trust these five things, we see how they were manifest in Jesus himself. That that will be the main thing that will not only protect us from sinning, but it will also help us to be more effective in sharing God's character with a hurting and broken world that needs to know God. Remember what the five are? Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in love. And faithful. That's it. Very good. And so, uh, so I, I came up with kind of a neat thing uh, to kind of help you remember. You'll at least won't remember the... You'll, you'll, I promise you, you'll always remember the third one on the list. That is the middle finger. And so what do you do? What, what, what is the middle finger in our culture used for? To express? Come on, it's used to express anger, right? But God is slow to anger, right? That is, that is true humility. To believe that this is who God in Christ Jesus is. To believe it. To believe it so much that those very characteristics can start to consume your life. And when people look at you, don't let this go. When people look at you, they will think of God. That's our calling. When people looked at Jesus, what were they intended to see? God. Going back to... uh, to verse 15 of chapter 1. The sun is the icon, the image of the invisible God. We are made in God's image, and yet we ruined it all. But we have been raised with Christ, and so we have this renewed calling on our life to allow the character of Jesus to shape us, to reflect it out into the, to the world. The, that is to be the thing that consumes us not this false humility not this worship of angels uh it's so interesting such a person goes into great detail um and the essenes uh it's a jewish sect during the time of jesus uh, they worshiped angels and they're worshiping something that is created we all know this right the angels were created by god they are not worthy of worship. Only the creator is, right? Yet people began to worship angels because they were powerful, they were strong, they were mighty. So they began uh, to worship them. And so they believed that these angels gave them, and these are primarily uh, Jewish people that we're talking about here, that they would give them these special visions, so just like the Gnostics, they believed they had special what? Knowledge. People who worshipped angels believed they were given special visions. All right? So we kind of got, got all this kind of stuff working together here. And you see something that no one else has seen. What does that do for you? Man, how awesome. 
I must be so cool that an angel uh, who's a messenger of God would give me this vision. Paul has a vision. If you'll turn to uh, 2 Corinthians... Second Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> so Paul was not worshiping angels when he received his vision, uh, but he, he, uh, he was uh, in prayer. Um, I'll just begin in verse four, or verse three. And I know that this man... Paul's talking cryptically here. He's talking about himself. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. And I heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. See how the, the arrogance, humility thing is at work here? Uh, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Boy, if we can all get to that place where we are not boasting about our accomplishments or our accomplishments about our kids, but we're boasting about our weaknesses, because you see, when we're able to name a weakness, that weakness is what God can touch and heal and restore and make new. Right? Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would not be speaking the truth. But I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I say or do or because of these surpassingly great revelations. So he, knew, he knows that he is tempted to feel more than. He, is, he knows that when he tells his story about this vision that people are going to think, Ooh, Paul, Wow. He knows the temptation. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul is well acquainted with the capacity that these visions um, can, can lead to in the life of people to make them be puffed up and feel better about themselves than is warranted. And what he's trying to do is say, wait, you should feel awesome about yourself because you are alive in Christ. You should feel awesome about yourself is because Christ is ready, willing, and able to lead you to a full and abundant life. You don't have to reach out to something extra, the worship of angels beyond Christ. So when we get, and I think this can go for any of us when, we, when we're tempted to give in to our arrogance and to our pride, uh, they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They have lost connection with the head. And who is the head? We are Christ's body, and Christ is the head. 
from whom the whole body is supported and held together. Notice he doesn't say the soul there, the whole body. The whole body is supported, all of us together, is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. That as we stay humble, as we stay teachable, that is going to unlock this potential that we have to continue to grow in our understanding of God and understanding of his character and to trust it. Questions? Y'all always have questions for Pastor Kurt. What's the deal? Come on. No questions? All right. We ready to move forward? All right. So he's reminding you of something. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I think he's referring here to to Jewish food laws, right? Uh, These rules... uh, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with the use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, with their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But notice the last part here. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Not that I am no expert in Jewish food laws, so we need Pastor Kurt back here to help us through this. Um, one thing I believe about the Jewish food laws is that there was certainly something inherently in them that was to help them understand something about who God was and something about who they were. And it may... It may have been a statement of holiness in the basic sense of the word and that you are set apart as special. And one of the ways that you're going to be set apart as special is you're not going to eat certain things. You're not even to touch certain things, right? Because you are holy unto the Lord. That, that may be it. But now, since we are alive in Christ, we are holy because Christ is in us. That, that could be what is going on here. But certainly, uh, Jewish followers of Jesus, that would have been a hard sell for them to get over. What do you mean? I'm going to now have to call this person my brother or my sister, and they eat pigs. It sounds stupid, doesn't it? To, to us, who love to eat pigs. Well, at least I do. Uh, I love bacon, and I love pulled pork. I love all of those things. But that would have been an absolute anathema uh, to them. How can you point, pe- point people to God, they might have asked, if you are um, eating pigs? How can you be holy if you are eating pigs? And so, again, it's this, this uh, possibility of uh, looking down on others that don't uh, join in their, their rules. But another thing I think this speaks to, 
is any person, whether Jewish or Christian, there is a temptation to go through the motions of faith without allowing your life to be transformed by it. That we can feel good about going to church on Sunday morning, even tithing, uh, maybe you, you even pray uh, with your kids at night. But it has no, all, all that you learn and all the ways in which you allow those things to touch you, that your, your life is in general unaffected by it. These things, John Wesley uh, used this phrase very well, I think. He calls them a means of grace. That worship, scripture reading, prayer, fasting, that they are a means by which we allow God to reach out and teach and touch our lives for the sake of his kingdom. They are never to be a means in and of themselves. Right? It could be that some of the ways in which the, the uh, Gentile Christians were being really encouraged to engage in these food laws were just so, man, just do it and I will feel better about being in the family with you. To like check something off a box, that kind of thing. Or to even please God. Just, that's the way you can please God. Just do, follow these rules. means an end and of themselves. And it, it, it never works. Because just like it says, they lack any value in restraining. What else, what else do you have there besides sensual indulgence? I'm sorry? Evil desires. That's good. Indulgence of the flesh, all right? Yeah, that's, that's a good translation of that because we've already talked about, we've already talked about up, up above there about, um, about verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Yeah, that's good. That you can check off the boxes, but are you allowing Jesus to reach your heart? And believing these things to be true about God. Okay. Questions? Yes, hold on, Sherry. Daniel hadn't got his exercise in today. He's coming. Sherry, right here. Well, things are so different nowadays. We don't follow the same rules anymore. That's right. So how is that going to apply to us being Christians at the end of the day? Oh, man, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so what, what, are, what are the temptations, right? We, we, are, we are normally in this room... Um, we are normally not tempted to rigorously follow Jewish food laws. I know there are people in this room that enjoy and get a lot out of following Jewish food laws. Yes, that's great. It's great. It's no problem. But it's the, it's, you know, it's the 
one group saying, you must do this in order for Jesus' love and grace to be released in your life. That's the problem. So, what is the temptation in our culture to look to something else besides Jesus to give us our marching orders for our lives? Well, um, our relationship with money and what money can and cannot buy. That could be that could be one thing. We have we we have a we place a high value uh, in our culture on appearance, right? If you look a certain way, if you act a certain way, then you're worthy of acceptance, right? And so it's like so think think about what are the values of our culture in America and ask, are those the same values of the kingdom of God? Like, there is a huge value in, like, Midland and North America altogether. There is a value of competition. And we'll even teach our kids, competition is good. It builds what? Character. And we're so quick to say that. Biblically speaking, is that true? Like, because what happens is then you start deriving your value off whether you win or not. And when we live in a culture that says, when you win, your status increases, that becomes a problem. Right? Yes, ex- exactly. Exactly. Where, where do people, and, and this is the way I, I like to say it, and I think it kind of cuts to the heart. What makes you feel good about you being you? And I think what Colossians is trying to teach us, the thing that should make you feel good about you being you is that you are raised with Christ. And you being raised with Christ has deep implications for the way that you live your life in relationships with others. Have you ever thought about this? That when you're in a, and, I, and just please hear me, I love sports just like the next person. I mean, the Rangers, gosh, they're hard to watch right now. I want them to win, right? And they lose. Did they even win last night? Nope. So, so they won two games. I think they're two and nine or something like that. I want them to win, right? I want them to win. So don't, I'm not slamming all competition. Don't hear me saying that. But when we are in a competitive mode with someone else, do you know the person? Listen close to this. Don't lose me. The people that you are playing, they, are, they become a commodity to you. In that, that they can make you feel good about yourself or bad about yourself if they beat you. And you've got to be really careful to guard against that. 
Enjoy, enjoy the competition. Enjoy the, 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 the camaraderie with your teammates. Have you ever been taught to enjoy your opponents? We should. As followers of Jesus, we should be taught to enjoy our opponents in that they're not just a commodity to win, to, to beat, or to lose against, but they are somebody to be loved. Jesus says that, right? I mean, surely not every team, and they're, they're not the enemy, right? But some people think they are, right? <laughs> Jody's son, uh, before, uh, before uh, Bible study tonight, he showed me a video clip of uh, this, was it a Little League game, Jody, or was it a college game? It was a college baseball game, right? So the stakes are a little bit higher in college baseball. This... Uh, this uh, college player hits a grand slam off this pitcher. And so, obviously, there were things brewing before this, I think. So when the, the guy, that, you know, his three teammates scored, and when he rounded third base, the pitcher decked the other guy. I mean, just out of nowhere, just blasted him. What do you do with that, friends? Right? It's kind of like Will Smith all over again, right? It's like, good grief. Um, and so, but that, that needs to be a value for, for us as parents and grandparents whose kids are involved in sports to challenge them to love their opponent and to love them well. That means that we're going to will their good. When you're willing their good and trying to beat them at the same time, it's kind of hard, but there's probably creative ways to make that happen. Um, I, thinking about baseball clips, one of my favorite baseball clips of, I think it's a junior high baseball game. Uh, there are these uh, kids, um, it's, it's, a, it's a big game, and the uh, pitcher is pitching against his lifelong best friend. That they happen to land on different teams for whatever reason. And the pitcher strikes his best friend out. And, of course, he's devastated. And the pitcher does not go and... It's, it, it, the game's over. The pitcher does not go and celebrate with his friends, with his teammates. He goes and hugs his opponent. You should look it up. It's an awesome clip. Oh. And so, again, I think, I think that's where the challenge lies in us living our life following Jesus authentically. Is that whenever he says... To love your enemies, he actually really means it. It's not just some hopeful thing in the future that's going to happen, but it's something that we actually do right now. We are tempted to demean our opponents. We are tempted to use them as a means to an end for us to feel better about ourselves. So, Sherry, I think that's a long way to answer your question. I think that's one way that we in our culture are tempted to discount people and to push them away. Does that make anybody feel uncomfortable? (laughs) We got one no and one yes. And so, good for both of you. Anything else? Well, good. Guess what? 
you've made it halfway through. <laughs> and so one of the things that I want you, so, so kind of how we started out tonight is we started out reminding, uh, reminding ourselves that Paul is really concerned that you can get distracted. Culturally in Colossae, the distractions were coming from the Gnostics and they were coming from uh, the Jews who did not want the Christians to get off so easy. They wanted them to be more involved in uh, the Jewish faith than maybe Paul was comfortable uh, encouraging them to be because it was going to take their focus off of Jesus. So then... When we turn the page into chapter 3 next week, what we're going to get is, okay, so there's the temptation to be distracted. Now, what do we really need to focus our attention on when we say that we are alive in our life? If our li- the, the verse here in um, verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's kind of the theme of the whole book. What does a life, your life and my life, and our life collectively together look like when our life is hidden with Christ in God? And thankfully, Paul helps us out a lot and kind of lays it out for us. Several of you in our church throughout the years have memorized Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Um. If you've memorized in the past and maybe uh, have forgotten parts of it, I would encourage you to go back and memorize it. If you've never memorized it, over the next five weeks as we move towards completing our study of Colossians, make that a goal. Just set it on replay on your phone. And while you're in the car with your kids, just keep rehearsing it over and over and over again. And what that will help you do is when these distractions and temptations come from these competing voices, you will be able to be locked and loaded on what a life hidden in Christ with God looks like. We good? Any other questions? Yes, Marie. Daniel, can you hand over the microphone? Do you think that the end of chapter 2 was a deliberate reference back to Psalm 34? Taste and see that the Lord is good. The end of chapter 2, a deliberate quote of Psalm 44 of taste and see that the Lord Psalm is good. Psalm 34. Do you think it was I'm sorry, Psalm 34. deliberately referencing back to Psalm 34? I don't know. Because it mirrors it beautifully. Yeah. Let me... Uh, I will look into that, and I'll let you know next week. That's a great question. Thank you. All right, anything else? Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be aware of the ways in which that we too easily get caught up in the values and the pressures of the culture in which we are seeking to live our life following you. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to not see it as a loss, 
when we have to abandon a value of our culture. But Lord, help us to see it as a beautiful gain to further live into the fullness that you have for us and to reflect your character back into the world. Lord, we pray for Pastor Kirk tonight. Lord, as he settles back into home and uh, gets, uh, gets busy with his healing and restoration, Lord, we just pray that you'll give him strength, endurance, and comfort to heal well. And Lord, that not only his neck will be good, but Lord, his whole body uh, in, his, in his hand and other places where this has affected him, Lord, that all will be healed and all will be well. Bless he and Lisa and Jason. And we just thankful for tonight in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, y'all.